the invitation to come and preach here today. This church did play a part in my life, and um, it's good to be back. I think the last time I was uh, in this church was uh, when Ralph Sturdy was pastor, and we did joint uh, confirmation retreats, and we came here and, and uh, for one of those retreats. Um, I, I have decided that I cannot start naming people, but when in 1963 and 64, um, there were some people in this church that took a special interest in those of us who were at the university. And uh, I have strong and vivid memories of the time. You know what, when you're young, you sort of assume that people do things and you don't really realize what a sacrifice or it, it was. But when you get older, you realize that people who gave themselves to you week after week after week, uh, that that was a, a significant commitment. Um, most of them are, are gone now, but uh, some of their children uh, are still here. And some of you who were, were here then um, as adults uh, are still with us. <clears throat> I was uh, impressed last night with the concert that was given in this sanctuary. And I particularly like the words that Paul said about the fragileness of, of institutions and what an amazing thing it is to be strong and vital 125 years uh, after being founded. We would, every year at the annual meeting, uh, talk about churches that had closed. Both of the congregations that I served for any length of time um, are no longer in existence. And uh, here you are, 125 years, and not just alive, but, but vital. Uh, and I, I, I wanna congratulate you on that reality. And uh, to thank all the people that have made this place possible and kept it uh, vital and alive. Um, I also was greeted this morning by a young woman who had a shirt that said, Baptized by Glenn. And uh, <clears throat> I would like to, uh, uh, I'm not going to point you out, but <laughs> I have a, a few friends from my days in Olathe, Kansas, and uh, it's nice to have you here, and I thank you for that. There may be others that have come uh, because of a relationship with me, and I haven't seen you yet, but um, I'm, I appreciate it. Uh, one of my parishioners have, uh, is a, still a good friend of my son, and he is, his family just moved to Lincoln, and he's teaching at the university, and he attended his first game yesterday. Um, <clears throat> I'm hoping to get his tickets. I don't think he's gonna be as interested now. So. <clears throat> would ask you to join me in prayer. God, in the stillness of this sanctuary, we ask for your Holy Spirit to be present as we together look into your word. Open our hearts and open our minds. In the name of Christ, amen. The title of my sermon this morning 
is accepting Jesus. Like many of you, I suspect, I grew up in a church where that was the focus, the Covenant Church in Aurora, Nebraska. The goal was to invite people to accept Jesus. One summer when I was maybe 11 or 12 years old, I went to Covenant Cedars Bible Camp and I was invited to accept Jesus. Following the evening service at that camp, the pastor that week was named Glenn Lindell, and he and a young intern from this church by the name of John Weborg came to our cabin and talked with each of us individually and asked us if we would like to accept Jesus. And when I said yes, they put a chair in the room and I knelt down by the chair and I prayed to accept Jesus. Following that experience, I returned home and really nothing was different. And I don't know if it didn't take or I was simply acting on emotion or what. In the summer following my graduation from high school, I had a second conversion experience. I accepted Jesus a second time. This time it was at the urging of my cousin, Bud Palmberg, who's a covenant pastor. This time it changed the direction of my life. I came fresh out of that conversion experience to the University of Nebraska and to this church where some very caring people nurtured me and helped me begin what has been a lifelong journey. I went to North Park College and my relationship continued to grow and to mature and eventually I felt a call to Christian ministry. Fast forward now to when I became president of the Covenant Church. After serving in that role for a few years, I entered into kind of a spiritually dry time. I was meeting frequently during those years with John Weborg. He functioned as a sort of spiritual director for me. I told John one day, I said, it, it, it's become difficult for me to worship or to participate in worship in a covenant church in any meaningful way. I illustrated by telling, am I doing something that's making this? Okay. I illustrated with John by telling about going to North Park Covenant Church one Sunday and sitting down in the pew and the woman in the pew ahead of me turned around and said to me, has anyone talked to you about the food at Northbrook Retirement Center? And there was a man in that church that would follow me around after worship and he 
would say to me things like, we have a lot of churches here in, in the area, Manual Covenant, Ravenswood Covenant, Kyler Covenant, Grace Covenant. He said, we don't know one another. He said, why don't you have a picnic and get us all together? And he would ask me every time he would see me if I had that planned that picnic yet. I got so I would arrive at church late and leave early so I wouldn't have to talk with anyone. And John Weborg said to me, he said, Glenn, he said, I want you to find an Episcopal church that serves the Lord's Supper every week. And he said, every week that you can, go there and receive the Eucharist. He said, some of them do it on Wednesday morning and uh, find one that, you, that will work for you and go there. And he said, I want you to take communion and I want you to not ask any questions about it. I want you to not analyze it. Just receive the body and the blood of Christ and see what happens. <clears throat> I found a very small Episcopal church in Edgebrook. On a normal Sunday, there were 13 people worshiping in that congregation, served by a retired woman pastor. Every Sunday, we would go forward to the altar and kneel, and we were told to hold our hands like this, and the pastor would come by and place the wafer in our hands. And one Sunday, I was kneeling there, and I'm thinking about, you know, John Weborg and why he had me come there. And the woman came by, and she said, receive Jesus. And she placed the wafer in my hand. And it came to me, I'm kneeling again, and I'm accepting Jesus again. I'm saying yes to Jesus. On July 30, 2011, I was at the Hyatt near O'Hare for the dedication of the John Weborg Center for Spiritual Direction. The speaker was a man named Nicholas Waltersdorf. He was a faculty member at Yale Divinity School. Deeply in his sermon that night, he was commenting on the words in Matthew 26, where Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood. And he said, when Jesus declares that the bread is his body, he is assigning to that bread significance of standing in for or representing his body. And when he declares the wine is his blood, he is likewise assigning to the wine the significance of standing in for or representing his blood. The Eucharistic memorial of Jesus takes the form of incorporating items that stand in for or signify or represent or go proxy for the body and the blood of the one commemorated. When we eat the bread and drink the wine, we are receiving Christ's offer of salvation. We are accepting Jesus once again. Accepting Jesus has become something that I do every time I receive the sacrament. 
Then he talked about the parable that was read today, the parable of the great judgment from Matthew 25. King Jesus is seated on his throne with all of his glory and all the members of all the nations are gathered before him. He separates the crowd into the two groups like a shepherd separates sheep from goats, ushering the sheep to his right and the goats to his left. To those on his right, he then declares that they are blessed because I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. In this parable, the poor, the hungry, the imprisoned, the forsaken, the neglected, become a stand-in for Jesus. Like the bread and the wine in Matthew 26, they become a representative of Jesus, a proxy. And what we do with them, we do for him. And what we ignore or fail to do for them, we fail to do for him. Here's the part of the parable that intrigues me. Those on the right who are ushered into the kingdom don't know it. They don't know they are Christ. When was, when was it we treated you in these ways? When? Jesus replies, I tell you, when you did it, did those things to one of the least of these members of my family, you did them to me. And Jesus bestows eternal life on them. Our welcoming the stranger counts as our welcoming Jesus. Our caring for the sick <coughs> counts as our caring for Jesus. What this implies is that the least of these among us are stand-ins for Jesus. They represent Jesus. That is an unsettling thought. The vulnerable, the outcast, the marginalized stand in for Jesus in our world. How we treat them, we treat him. Proxies for Jesus. There is a connection between receiving the Eucharist and caring for the outcast and the vulnerable because they are both stand-ins for Jesus. <clears throat> we have a man in our church in Seattle. His name is Robert, and he's been a part of First Covenant for many years. Robert has some serious difficulties. His eyes bulge, his teeth have not had care. Uh, he just has many things working against him. When we first moved to Seattle uh, the first time, my wife signed up for a tutoring program and she was assigned to tutor Robert. One day she said to me, you know, Glenn, she said, Robert cannot learn 
I'm trying to tutor him and teach him. He cannot learn. Robert cannot get a job. He cannot keep a job. But I have... Occasionally, Robert would come to choir, and he doesn't sing. He would just stand there during choir rehearsal, just to be a part of the group, just stand there. And the choir rehearses, and, and he doesn't participate. <clears throat> but Robert has a strange habit in worship. Our sanctuary is, is like a half circle. <clears throat> and Robert, I, I think he doesn't fully grasp what's going on, so he uh, understand what, what everything is that's, that's happening in the sanctuary. And he has a habit of moving around the sanctuary. And a few months ago, I was sitting in church, and he tapped me on the shoulder, and he said, where's your wife? And I said, well, she's up there in the choir. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And a little while later, I look, and here's Robert. He's moved over, gone around and come over and sat over here. And I have begun to picture him and think this. Jesus just went over to see how the Carlsons are going to treat him. And a little later, here's Robert. He's going over to this side now. And I'm looking and I'm thinking, oh, Jesus wants to know how the Sunholms are going to accept him. On May 5, 2002, <clears throat> I was invited to go preach at a covenant church in Chicago in the uptown area. It, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a poverty pocket on the north side, just north of, of downtown Chicago. And we have a church there called Jesus People USA. It's a commune. They live together. They pool their resources together. They have the largest homeless shelter in the city. <clears throat> and I was invited to go there and preach. And I, I went early so I could find the they were meeting in a school next door to the, to the old hotel where they all, all 450 of them lived together. And I got there early and to the school and the door was locked, but there was a woman sitting on the sidewalk leaning against the brick wall and she was talking to herself. And I heard her say something about Montana and I was the only other one there and, and, she, and it became uh, apparent that she was intoxicated. <clears throat> Finally, one of the ministers came to open the door, um, one of the pastors at Jesus People, and she unlocked the door and in went Beverly. And the pastor turned to me and she said, when you're preaching, she said, now Beverly may come up and interrupt you. And sometimes she yells at the preacher and she might come in and she said, if she does, she said, you can either keep preaching and we'll come and take care of Beverly, or you can just stop and wait and we'll come and, and take care of her. <clears throat> and I said, Tina, I said, how long has Beverly been doing this? And Tina said, oh, about 13 years. few months ago, I, I work at that homeless shelter. I have a room at Jesus People now, <clears throat> and I go to Chicago frequently, and I, I work with their shelter. And I came down from my room, and there's a long corridor from the two doors that enter 
the building. And I came to the first glass door, and I could see Beverly laying on the floor, spilled her coffee, <coughs> and knelt down beside her were two of the people that I work with at the shelter, Jeremy, a caseworker, and his wife, Beth, who is a, an office worker at the shelter. And they were kneeled down on the, on, down on the floor with Beverly, and they were helping her. And I stopped and thought to myself, <clears throat> Jeremy and Beth are on their knees accepting Jesus again. <clears throat> One day I got a, an email from a man by the name of Glenn Kaiser. He's a, a fairly, he was a fairly famous musician, uh, had a thing called a res band that traveled all over the world. And he's a part of Jesus' people. And he sent me an email, and he said, Glenn, you've got to read a blog that Jeremy, the caseworker, has written. And it was about a woman uh, at the shelter who had died. And Jeremy wrote his blog to the woman who had died. And he wrote about her life and her struggle. She was drug addicted, and she was a prostitute. And Jeremy said, I heard you crying out to Jesus in the night, asking for forgiveness and for help. And then I watched you the next day return to your drugs and your prostitution. He said, the drugs finally won. But he ended with this sentence, I will see you in the resurrected life. The next time I was there, I went to Jeremy. I said, I want to talk to you about that. I said, Jeremy, do you really think that she was a Christian? He said, Glenn, she was doing the best she could. And yes, I believe she is with Jesus. Maybe. Maybe she was a stand-in for Jesus. Only God knows. The founder of Jesus People and the director of the shelter, when I first started working there, she has since passed away, she said to me, Glenn, we have the deserving, the undeserving, and the newly poor. She said, in order to tell the difference between the deserving and the undeserving, you have to know everything about their life, what chance they've had, how they were treated as children, what all has happened to them. She said, we can't know everything. So she said, if they come to our door, we believe God sent them, and we are to take care of them. I want to return to the parable. <clears throat> it has always bothered me that the saved in this parable didn't have a conversion experience that we know of. They didn't accept Jesus. We don't know if they believed the right things. And <clears throat> I turn to my friend Klein Snodgrass who wrote the book 
on the parables. I'm going to do just a short aside here. Klein Snodgrass was a professor at North Park Seminary his entire teaching career. And he wrote a book on the parables, and it took him 11 years to write it. And I was, whenever I was preaching on a parable, I would go to Klein and, and talk to him about it. And my last year as president, we'd give books out at, at the midwinter conference for pastors. And I said, Klein, this is my last chance. I want to give your book away. And I have a donor, and it, the book was $50 a, a, a piece. And I said, would, could, could they get it printed by the midwinter? He said, I'll call Erdman's. And he called them, and he called me back. He said, no, they said they're sorry, but it won't be out by then. I said, Klein, call them back and tell them that's really a shame because I was going to buy 1,200 copies. <laughs> Klein called me back. He said, they said no problem at all. They'll have the... <clears throat> That book was, was chosen as the book of the year by Christianity Today. They had 700 books, and they chose Klein as the, as the number one book that year. That's the, the aside now, but I'll get back to it. But I, I, I talked to Klein, and I said, Klein, you know, it, why are they surprised when Jesus tells them they're in? Don't they know they know Jesus? Klein's book is entitled Stories with Intent. He said the parables you have to realize they have a single point they are making. They are not allegories. You don't try to make multiple applications. They are stories to make a, a single point. And the surprise in this parable among both groups is a literary device which Jesus used to tell, to tell the motive uh, for these acts of compassion. What the surprise on the, for the people who Jesus invites into the kingdom tells us is that they were doing these acts of compassion not to impress Jesus or to curry favor or to earn a reward. They did their acts of compassion because this is who they are. It reveals their true character. Their acts of compassion reveal that Christ lives in them. That's what the parable is getting at. If they did it to impress Jesus, then it's not who they really are. Their surprise is a literary device to make that point. If they did it not knowing Jesus was taking notice then it is who they really are. This is who they are when no one is looking. The converse is true for those who are rejected and turned away in the parable. When Jesus, when Jesus said, <clears throat> uh, they said, when Jesus did we see you hungry and not give you food? When did we see you naked and not clothe you? When did we see you in prison and not visit you? It's as if to say, if we had known it was you, Jesus, we would have done it. It gets at their true character. They would have done it if they had known what was in it for them. But it's not who they really are. It's not who they are when no one is watching. Since neither group no, knew what was at stake. 
their true character came out. Judgment, the parable makes clear, will be based on who we really are. We tend to like labels. Who people say they are. I am an evangelical. I am a Bible-believing Christian. I am born again. Labels are not enough for Jesus. Jesus cares who we really are. We tend to emphasize faith, believing the right things. Jesus also emphasizes character. To be a follower of Jesus is to take on the character of Jesus. And that means acts of compassion. Discipleship is more than accepting Jesus. It is also following Jesus. Following Jesus is more than believing the right things. This parable really puts into the final judgment what Jesus said all of his earthly life. The poor among us matter to God. Sunday mornings at First Covenant Seattle, when I arrive, there are frequently two men in the narthex in wheelchairs. One is a man who, his wheelchair tilts back, his his neck is twisted, and his head is pointed toward the ceiling. His name is Brian. When Brian was 14 weeks old, his father threw him against a wall. Brian had a broken arm, a broken leg, broken ribs, two skull fractures. The doctor said it was like he had been dropped 500 feet on a piece of concrete. The doctor said Brian will probably live a week to a month. We have a woman who joined our church in the last few years. Her name is Rita, and she's a social worker. Rita said, I will take Brian. She took him home. Brian is now 27 years old. Brian cannot hear. He cannot speak. He cannot see. He cannot talk. Rita said, if you rub his stomach, he smiles. That's the only communication you can have. She said, people ask me, Rita, why do you keep him alive? She said, you know, Glenn, he serves a purpose. He shows us how to love someone who cannot return anything. Isn't that similar to what Jesus says in this parable? Paul is the other man in the wheelchair. Paul had a construction accident and is now confined to a wheelchair. And I was talking to Paul one morning, and all of a sudden, Brian was a a little ways away from us in the narthex, started moaning and moaning and moaning. And Paul said, I know what to do. And he pushes the electric thing on his wheelchair, and away he goes. And he started rubbing Brian's head, and Brian calmed down. And I stood there and thought, Paul just accepted Jesus once again. 
close with this illustration. In the 1930s and 40s, in Aurora, Nebraska, there were nine sisters who lived together. Their mother died at the birth of the youngest. Their father, an, alcohol, an alcoholic and an abuser, had been banned from entering Hamilton County. The older sisters were taking care of the younger sisters. They tell, would tell about people in the community who would allow them to come and get potatoes. After they had taken the potatoes, there's always those little ones left, and would say, you can come and clean out the garden, and they would get potatoes. Another man would let them steal apples. They said, we knew he saw us, but he would never uh, come out and stop us. The members of the Aurora Covenant Church, the pastor at that time was a man named Nathan Sunberg, started taking an interest in those nine girls. And they started working with them and helping them. And at one point, two of them had pneumonia, and they couldn't get a doctor. They had no money. They had no insurance. And Nathan Sunberg went and got a doctor and took him by the arm and took him to their house and said, you will treat these girls, and marched him in. A few of those girls through the Covenant Church in Aurora, a small church, found Christ. One of them ended up here. Her name was Donis Kissel. <clears throat> Another one married a man from the church who I'm going to visit this afternoon. He turns 92 next week. All of these sisters died pretty young. Uh, obviously, they didn't have healthy food and things when they were growing up. Uh, her son is a covenant pastor in Illinois. A third one of those women was named Edna, and she married a son of a covenant pastor and gave birth to uh, her second son, whose name is Glenn Palmberg. I think about that, and I wonder if God smiles when he thinks of what Nathan Sunberg and that little church in Aurora did and what it has resulted in. Um, you have been welcoming the stranger and caring for people in this community for 125 years. Much of what you do in this community is not only leading people to accept Jesus, but you are accepting Jesus yourselves. We don't know how many people have walked into this community of faith, how many neglected people you have cared for, but we do know that God keeps track. And every time you do it, you are accepting him.